Welcome, everyone, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Troy. Hello, everyone. And Tom. Hello. Alex is currently gallivanting around the countryside. Um, I think last time I checked, he was in Oklahoma somewhere. Uh, he has helped moving his father to Arizona. Um, hopefully, he makes it back in one piece. I hear he is renting a Jeep to... Uh, come back on the return trip which should be pretty cool that does sound like fun like a wrangler like take the top off type jeep i think so i think that's what he meant i mean if it wasn't then right if it was a yeah, grand cherokee get, like, like a who cherokee? cares yeah <laughs> and like just get a corolla and just save on gas you know right exactly you know you gotta either get like get the jeep wrangler or like a firebird would be a a dope option um tangential thought though i watched a video of um the like whatever the new bugatti was it reached like i think it was 240 or 250 miles an hour damn um on the road right sounded like a fucking like a jet when it drove by just ridiculous not very attractive looking cars in my opinion though i mean they're supposed to be as aerodynamic as possible right right no and that's where i was gonna go with it is like because they're designed to go so fast they're designed with one purpose like there's no stylistic like there's as much as you can do but i don't know aerodynamic cars look kind of stupid agreed but they also that well i guess that i guess the bugatti doesn't get very good gas mileage but it would get a lot worse gas mileage if it was shaped like a like an suv <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> I mean, they have found that the, I think it's the fully electric cars have like the best acceleration, right? Uh, yeah, that's because you get a lot of torque out of electricity. So oh, they, okay. they get moving really, really fast, but it's really difficult to get them to like go fast. Like have a really good top speed? Yeah, I mean, you can do it, but it's just like the power that you have to put out and then to make it sustainable. Like I think even the BMW, whatever the hell it's called, I can't even remember, but there's a fully electric BMW that's like a quote-unquote supercar, you know, hundred, $150,000 car that's meant to be fast. But, like, I think if you take it on a track, it dies within, like, 45 minutes or something just because of how much power it takes to go that fast. And then, like, it's using so much of it. I mean, that may have come a long way because I don't think I've read about that in, like, years. So maybe they've gone further. But to your original point, yeah, you get a lot of torque out of electric vehicles. So... The upstart is really good. Yeah, I really I don't think that it has improved that much because um, I feel like I would have heard of some sort of like, you know, massive battery innovation, which is basically the the limiting factor on those vehicles. Um, And I don't think there has been like there's incremental improvements in batteries um, and they are getting better, but there hasn't been any type of revolution where like the actual capacity of batteries has been increased by significant enough um, proportions in order for it to to power a vehicle for uh, an extended period of time. Yeah, especially not at that speed. Power supply because there's like yeah. hybrids that are able to obviously do more, but like there's some vehicles that they use batteries and electricity for specifically the torque to get them going really fast but then they operate off of normal gas to like maintain speeds and stuff like that but yeah oh, there's no okay. like, which i'm actually kind of surprised i shouldn't say i'm surprised but like with how long battery technology has been around 
it's a little surprising that we haven't like progressed to like that next big innovation where like you know how like everything gets smaller and smaller like think about how we stored like data on floppy disks and then like mm-hmm. cds and then like usbs and now you can have like a hard drive that's worth like a million floppy disks that you can buy at staples like mm-hmm. batteries haven't made that same like technological jump like a double a AA battery isn't like 50 times more powerful than a double a battery was like 25 years ago oh yeah totally i mean i think part of it is that like uh like for like cpus right like the the mechanical concept of a transistor is something that makes a lot of sense that, to minimize so you can just put a shit ton of them right and you know as long as you have more and more precise machinery you can just keep adding things you can keep adding cores and you know and more ability to process but with a battery right like it's a chemical storage there's not really except by adding more of it right and having a bigger and bigger battery then you don't really you can't really get more bang for your buck that way so a lot of it is just like you need to actually it's it's more a question of like you need to reinvent the battery like there needs to be some other way to make a battery in order for it to to succeed in like a um in like I said in that like exponential way that you expressed with like with like a phone compared to a floppy disk or a hard drive compared to a floppy disk right yeah it's not like you're not fine tuning the technology you already know and just like adding to it with more precise machinery you like a battery does what a battery does. You'd have to like make a battery point too. Like, <laughs> yeah. And there's been like some obviously some advancements in terms of like what materials are used in a battery, right? So like lithium ion batteries are um, are improvements on previous like lead acid battery, um, and they do perform quite a bit better. I mean, they're actually usable, right? Um, but like for instance, when I was looking into like outfitting a van as a camper. There's pretty much, I mean, there is no way, really, unless you have, like, a shit ton of batteries to run an AC for any reasonable length of time, uh, because just the draw is too much, um, and it's sustained. So, like, yeah, I mean, you're messing around with different kinds of chemical compositions and um, clever ways of draining batteries and managing draws and not wasting energy, but you're all, it's kind of like a... It's the same kind of problem that electric cars have, right? Whereas, like, you can't fit, you can't fix the battery part, so they do things like, you know, well, we can steal a little bit of energy when somebody breaks, right? Because that creates some amount of friction, and we can refeed that into the battery. And yeah, I mean, that might get you an extra whatever thirty seconds of power on the battery, like over a eight hour driving distance, but it's it's never going to make the difference you want it to, right? Yeah, no, I know. I just, it's just one of those things, like, with batteries. So many different forms of technology have just advanced to the point where they're, like, not even recognizable to, like, what we used to use 20 years ago. And batteries just haven't made that made that jump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, welcome to the Literal battle, Battery Club Club. Where... The Literal Science Battery Club. <laughs> Where we charge, so you don't have to. I don't know shit. I don't know shit about cars. Otherwise, I'd contribute more. But do you know shit about batteries? <laughs> no, no. I wish I did. Honestly, I wish I was scientifically inclined. 
but uh, I always did very poorly in science and math class. I'm like pseudo scientifically inclined. I know like the smallest That's good. tidbits. That's good that you like pseudoscience. Yeah, um, I just I know like <laughs> he's the into alchemy tidbits about different things. And then I just formulate my own opinion with no research at all. And I'm like, that's got to be how it works. And then I just know what I'm talking about. That's the American way. I'm telling you. Goddamn right. I mean, if this country was founded on that, I can have a successful career in life if I just apply the same principles. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, just take everything that, you know, your uncle posted on Facebook. Take it for truth, right? You know? Scientifically proven, every media member is a pedophile. Scientifically proven, climate change isn't real, obviously. So you just just go. You go and go. There was like, I remember, I think it was like a year ago, I found this blog. It just blew my mind. There was some like disgruntled math grad student who wrote this diatribe about like inventing like like the ultimate flaw in math and it was like some sort of deduction where like zero equaled one and um poor guy i mean he sounded crazy but the like some other math people were on there and were like yeah you're just doing like you're doing the thing wrong but i wonder if he's right i wonder if just you know the people aren't ready to hear about his innovations yeah they're they're trying to put him down after his breakthrough that all of the math that we know is wrong. I One suppose the last time innovation. there was a massive mathematical debate. I can't think of a time when that has come up. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's... I assume it's happened, but we're not going to be privy to it, right? I already say, yeah, it's not for us peasants anyway. Well, it's probably over, like, some ridiculously complex thing. Like, so much of math is, like, tried and true <laughs> at this point. And it's used effectively for all kinds of things that work after the math has been done to design and engineer something. So it's like, I don't know, at a certain point, I think we just shrug our shoulders and we're like, yeah, it works. Math, math works, man. And then that's it. Well, I guess it's like there's abstract mathematics. And I know that there, there are like, I think 15 or 20 problems that are, if you can solve one of them, you get a million dollars. Um, and, uh, like one of them I know of because it's a it's an algorithm problem for um for computer scientists. It's called the traveling salesman, which is basically like given an arbitrary number of destinations and distances between those destinations. So you can just think of like dots in a map and you know lengths between those dots. Find me the most efficient route in in a like a reasonable amount of time. Uh, right now it is extremely inefficient to to um, travel to all of those paths in the most efficient way or travel to all of those locations in the most efficient way. If you can solve that, you get a million dollars. Um, so I know that there are those kinds of problems, but uh, for the most part, you know, people aren't going to know about them. I would say that like the most controversial stuff comes up when like physics gets involved. So like you think like quantum mechanics, right? Or like string theory. Um, those are like like speculative propositions about our like our world and then how you can prove that out with experimentation and then reconcile it with the other you know whatever scientific facts that we have so i know that like quantum mechanics and relativity they're 
predictions or they're like they're difficult to reconcile together. The goal of modern physics, you know, at least at the highest level is to kind of unify this theory or these theories of relativity and quantum mechanics because they seem to be at odds. So that's the only one that I know of that's actually uh, alive and prominent, I think. Yeah, yeah. I know all about that too. Yeah, so <laughs> that's some pseudoscience for you, brother. <laughs> there you go. I like how... Troy was just like, I don't really know a lot about science. And we're like, funny thing. <laughs> Here's a we lot do. more science. <laughs> I mean, hey, we go for it. If y'all know stuff about it, like, I'm down, down to listen for it. I'm sure the listeners appreciate it too. And hopefully we have like some disgruntled, you know, um, mathematician. Yeah, or like physics major. Maybe my buddy Mike Darcy is listening to the podcast and he can be like, wow, you really just fucked up talking about that. But good on you for coming off so, you know, arrogant and, and eloquent, uh, emphatic about it. Yeah. Yeah. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> Fuck yeah, we do. We read books. Yeah. So you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So this week um, is our, you know, our. Short little special, our Halloween special. We did one of these last year. Um, we read The Mask of the Red Death, I believe. And then um, uh, the w- we, like They Can Talk, But We Can't Scream. I forgot what the name of that oh, one was. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like, I, I must scream, but I have no mouth or something. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I must scream, but I have no mouth, which was like... Uh, I have no voice. It's something like that. It was, yeah. it was all right. It was okay. It, it was okay. It, yeah, it was basically like a... Um, wasn't it like kind of like a video game simulation thing? Or it was... Um, kind of. It's like the robot taking over and torturing everybody. Right, right. And you're turn, the, main, the main dude is turned into a worm, right? He can't scream because he has no mouth, as the title implies. Mask of the Red Death, superior. But this this year, we're reading or we have read, The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft, which I haven't read any Lovecraft before. And I will say I was, um, I did have high expectations coming into this. It did not disappoint. Um, it being in New England is definitely to its benefit. Um, but what did you guys think of the story? I thought it was fun. I also haven't read any Lovecraft, although I've heard a lot about him. He's become popular again in the last couple of years. Um, I also did think it was fun that it was set in mass. It made it, I don't know, felt more homey since a lot mm. of a lot of New England stuff is just well placed for horror. And I looked up that bird. Um, what's the, the whippoorwill? Yeah, the whippoorwill. I've never heard of those things before, but apparently it's like part of folklore that they sing their song when someone's about to die. That's interesting. Yeah, because I noticed that as well. He, the, I mean, obviously, it was there to notice. It was just constantly being mentioned that there were whippoorwills, you know, singing in unison and otherwise being, um, being creepy. But uh, yeah, they're actually a pretty cute bird. I wouldn't expect. Yeah, they're not bad looking at all. You know, their scientific name is a Capril Mogus vociferus. Dude, you said that fucking like a pro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I How many beers deep are you, Tom? Uh, <laughs> one third, which is a little okay. unsettling. <laughs> well, you were trying to to speak Latin there, so I think you're all right. Because that Thanks. they use they use Latin for that was Latin, right? They use Latin for species names. I'm pretty sure. Okay, I mean it certainly Good. looks and sounds like Latin. 
Um, not to derail so the th- us. The, uh, the thing I liked about this story a lot uh, is I think what has been told of me of Lovecraft turns out to be true is that he's really good at building tension. Um, there are some parts of it that I thought were a little clunky. Um, mostly his, uh, like the interjections of, um, of text or like of, of like the lore of the past city or like of, of Dunwich. Um, I didn't, I, I found a little bit shoehorned. Um, but other than that, like the, the plot itself for such a short little story, uh, it has this you know, this rising factor to it. Um, and it does feel a little bit slow plotting, even though, you know, you could read this in 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, and with the, like, kind of the the surprise sort of twists as things get moving and then the ultimate reveal at the end, um, I mean, I, I did actually feel, like, anxious reading it. Um, it wasn't, and it was something that drew me in instantly, which I thought was to its credit. Yeah, I think that it definitely does draw you in and it builds the tension well because he just keeps mentioning it it's like everybody is just always on edge everybody's uncomfortable in the story for one reason or another like the family is just creepy and then obviously they're like spawning this demon monster and then not showing it is always a good idea never revealing the monster because what the people what the town folk our fearing is always going to be more interesting to watch than looking at the monster. And like the more you look at it, the less scary it becomes. I posted a link down below in the chat here. Um, it's a weird fucking looking thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know. HP Lovecraft was an odd guy. I credit him for not going the like satanic route because it's like, Ooh, creepy witches and stuff or worshiping the devil. Um, which, you know, that's its own category of horror. But his stuff is like, no, this is a tentacle monster that's also a floating orb and it has 10,000 eyes. It's like, okay, <laughs> cool. I have no idea right, where that came right. from, but uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the first um, paragraph, I thought that was what the the quote at the top of um, the the text where it says, Gorgons and hydras and chimeras, dire stories of Seleno and the harpies, may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. They are transcripts, types. The archetypes are in us and eternal. How else should it? Um, how else should the recital of which we know in a waking sense to be false to come affect us all? And I, I really like this idea of um, of Lovecraft evoking something that's primordial that like exists before our existence, right? This great unknown. And unlike, um, and by not really giving a definite shape to what that is, um, as you said, Troy, it's very, it's compelling um, to keep on reading. And the, the grotesqueness of the demons or, you know, monsters uh, is that much more intriguing because you don't you don't really get the window into it that that you would otherwise. And also, how far ahead of his time? Like this is I don't know. This seems like something that would be written in the fifties or sixties in the atomic age. This is written in like the nineteen teens, I think, or the nineteen twenties. Anyway, it was pretty early on. But uh, I don't know. I just feel like he's a straight curveball. I'll 
he's just i don't know this is very different from other horror that i've read it's very unique yeah no i agree with that i mean it's very unique and like thought out and like you guys were saying i think like his depiction of what this thing is is so different than what you'd expect it's not like a typical like oh it's a demon like think of the devil but like smaller like it's actually you know he he definitely spent some time in it i liked it i i kind of had higher expectations because i also haven't read any lovecraft but um and i thought it was okay i didn't think it was a great story but that's mostly because i i don't know if i really liked the plot of the story um he is very wordy in like some unnecessary areas but then there's certain like portions of dialogue that i'm like okay like that doesn't belong there. Like one of the ones that really stuck out to me was I think it's in chapter nine towards the end um, when Armitage, the guy who's like doing all the research and stuff to figure out how to like defeat this thing. Like the guys, the people from the town come like storming up the road and they're like, holy hell, like this thing's coming out in the day because it's cloudy and like all oh, that's fine. But then he goes in this like kind of monologue and he's like, all right, listen up, boys. This is what we're going to do. This is exactly how we're going to do it. This is what I've been studying. And in this one paragraph, I'm going to explain every little detail that needs to happen. And it's like, I don't think that's how communication would work in that situation. I also, I do think that the dialogue was the weakest point of the story. Like the description is great and building tension, but especially like the, I guess a regional accent is like people from like Massachusetts are not that stupid, but it's just like, it's so butchered where it's like yeah. every other word or serve some people, almighty. every singer, every single, word. not just like the spelling of it, but I don't like butchering words where you're just cutting them off. It just, I don't know. It doesn't work well. I think yeah. it like Flannery O'Connor did it very well where she will write in like slight misspellings and just the way that people will slur words, but she doesn't destroy the English language. Like <laughs> these are not even <laughs> words. It's just a bunch of random like half words. And it's almost like you're trying to phonetically sound out what a hillbilly would sound like. Um, and it was just, it was, it took me out of the story cause I had to like concentrate on like, wait, what is this actually saying? And that's kind of like how I felt about it. In in one way, I get it because he goes into like quite a bit of detail in the beginning of the story as to like how uneducated this particular community is. And like, I think he tried to hammer that home with the dialogue, but it just felt like the dialogue didn't fit to the story. I like the description. I like the way that like the story flowed. To your point earlier, Sam, I thought that there was a lot of tension, like what's going to happen next? Where's this going? what is in this house and why are they rebuilding it? They're talking about like the scars and stuff that are on the cattle and all that I thought was great. Like I, I enjoyed that and I liked the way that it moved. But w when I got to certain points of the dialogue, I was like, well, now you lost me, you know? And even like the end of it, like the last little dialogue piece where it's like, he's kind of trying to like wrap it up a little bit and like give an explanation to the story. But I feel like a lot of those details should have been inserted through like inserted outside of the dialogue like there was way mm -hmm. to bring that about as to like what the character was doing and what he was looking at and what he was like messing with and messing with and putting together as opposed mm. to just saying like here's the facts man like now you get the story <laughs> and i was like okay 
Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. Two things. One is on the topic of the linguistics. Is um, I've been reading the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is like does the same exact thing, but cl- definitely better. I would say that the reason why it works in that case and not this case is because that is how the book is written. Uh, so you eventually become accustomed to the way characters are talking because they talk that way, right? Whereas in a short story, you don't really have the opportunity to um, introduce linguistically as much. And um, something that you both have noted, which I think bears emphasizing, is that the Armitage as a character is just like incredibly underdeveloped and not like he's so my, you know, not to say I could write this better than Lovecraft, but I would say that what would improve this story quite a bit is a little bit more um, description, as you said, Tom, about what Armitage is doing beforehand as a, as a way of showing his, his uh, gaining of knowledge rather than him telling us. Um, And then the other is that I thought that the ending being kind of like a strangely happy one was really unfortunate because what I really wanted to happen and what I thought would be much more satisfying as an ending is for like the three dudes to go up, confront this thing and get like possessed or something. Right. Like I wanted some carnage or just eaten. It doesn't like the two houses that it destroys. The people aren't even dead. They're just gone. It like turns it into goo. Right. right, and like the the climax of the story, this whole confrontation, from what I got out of it, was basically like they threw a bunch of dust on it so they could see it for a second, and then they waved their arms up in the air, yelling incantations until it disappeared. And I was like, where's yeah, the they, death? They recited the some magic. They sent it back to the other plane. Mm, you can't kill yeah. the thing. And, and even like the guy who like fell over and like passed out when he was looking at like the looking glass, like that was mm-hmm. more like exciting action moments of that, which it absolutely should not have been. Right. I, I just feel that like Armitage should either be more impressive, right, to the point where there's like something amazing that Armitage does in order to save the town, or it should be one of those things where you get let down, right? They build arm or Lovecraft builds Armitage up to be this particular type of guy. And he just, he, you know, he's impressive in certain kinds of ways. And then the horror just destroys him immediately, right? He's, it's complete, um, you know, he's completely at the mercy of this, uh, this demon. And, it's just ending, like you said, with like, oh, okay, so we see the thing, we do the incantations. There's not really all of that tension was built up, and it kind of feels like it was for no reason. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I felt about it. I was well, very had, disappointed by like good piece though when the monster first comes about and all the town folk are like huddling together and like boarding up windows. The first two nights, that part is like good tension. I felt like. It had built oh, to like it. It's great. starting to do a little bit of a rampage. I just wish that, that had continued. Like, well, I think part- that's kind of yeah. why I was like let down a little bit was because that portion I thought was really good when it first got out and like the house was destroyed and like the cattle were like all, you know, mangled and whatnot. And then, you know, it came a couple different times, like the Fry's house or whatever got destroyed and I was like, and they're hiding. It, it even has that one little line where they're like locking the door, even though they know it's not going to do anything and like huddling together and stuff. I'm like, okay, great. And then the last half of 
whatever chapter nine and then the end of chapter 10 i was like that's it like that's that's what we get after all that build-up i don't know gotta be like more like shooting fireballs like you can go an action route you can go getting eaten route um i mean even even doing something like you know you leave the perspective of Armitage at, at Rice and Morgan as they go up to face the Dunwich Horror, right? And you you keep to the perspective of the townspeople. And then, and then you know, from their point of view, right? Because we've been in a position in the last, the, the previous chapter of being in the townspeople's perspectives as this monster is raging around. But just something other than we did the spell, we did the thing. Um, would have been more satisfying. I thought it was fun. Like some of the parts that were good about Armitage is when he's first introduced and he's interacting with, um, what's his name? Wheatley, the guy that's summoning the demon. Um, yeah, the goat man. Yeah. The goat man that's eight feet tall. And I, th- at first when he Regular. was introduced, I thought it was going to be an antichrist. Cause it, I was like, Oh my God, he's totally drinking blood. Dogs hate him. He's hairy. He's very intelligent. He's larger than normal. Um, but no, Lovecraft is a lot weirder than my imagination. So <laughs> going a completely different route. But I like the part where he goes to the library and it's like the search for um, archaic forbidden knowledge. Like that's a fun trope. I don't know if I'd call it a cliche, but like everybody's studying linguistics and it's a cipher and he has to figure it out. And then the part where Armitage is deciphering the diary and there's like a little montage of him studying and figuring it all out. That part was fun, that section. But then afterwards, his character kind of goes downhill. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I basically like the only reason it's a letdown is because everything else was really solid beforehand outside of the, the uh, dialogue, as was previously mentioned. Uh, but all of the history of the the Waitleys and of Dunwich in general, and the you know the idea that we don't we're always we're always guessing what's happening in there. We never really get an insight into um, into whatever the the fuck Goatman's name is, Goatman and and his grandfather, what they're up to, and we just get these little tidbits as as the story progresses. Um, yeah, it was just a little bit of a letdown and. And I, uh, I just think, I mean, to be honest, it's just like, I don't know, maybe it's like an extra five pages, you know, it's not like this is a fucking long piece here. He didn't really have to do much more to make it better. No, I think like a little bit extra about not just like when he was like staying up all night and like was like malnourished because he was so stressed out about like finding the answer to this like demonic text and everything like giving a little insight into like the things that he found out. So he knew like what to expect of what he was going to do or use so that like when the actual climax happened, it would, I guess, make more sense or be more colorful, but there just wasn't enough of that. And then the actual action portion of it, when you're getting the resolution of the story, just to me left like a lot to be desired. Like I said, I mean, my takeaway in like, layman's terms bare bones is that they threw a bunch of dust on this guy so they could see it for a half a second and then they waved their arms around and shouted at it until it disappeared and like that's not how i want they're not shouting they're not just shouting at it though they're shouting like the magic phrase to open the The incantations they became warlocks over four days like they were casting shadow bolt it's like this unspeakable language that's nothing but consonants 
And it's like, how do you... Would they not mispronounce that? And then right. the demon just yeah. kills them. But I thought yeah, the... Yeah, 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 ha, ha. I thought the first half of the story was stronger. And then particularly, mm. like, right around the middle, but on the front half, was the strongest piece. I really liked how, in terms of building tension, we, like, know that the Dunwich horror is, like, something that's coming. It's continually referenced. And he's almost, like, telling us years later and remembering it and he'll just sprinkle some little things in that makes it seem more credible like mentioning real names of people and places and historical events um and then also he'll say like oh yes well it was at this point which was the precursor to it and so it's like you know that it's just you're one step closer each time um so i thought that part worked very well or it was a very quick read up to that point oh 100 percent now, I mean, now that you mention it, um, the well, first, yeah, Troy, I really do think that the first half um, had a, you know, it really gripped you and it made the second half a lot more uh, easy to to go down because I really did want to know what happened. Um, but the the thing that came to mind, Tom, after you mentioned the, you know, how this horror has gone away, I mean, it would have been just great if it didn't do anything, you know if their spell just did nothing. Right. And, yeah, and there was like some mystery left there instead of like, or I was expecting light. it to be super dark or just completely not realistic where, all oh, right, they're trying to also create more of these monsters. Cause these are like the little guys of the great old ones. And Cthulhu is one of the great old ones. So it's like, they summoned this demon this one is going to try to bring more, and then eventually they're going to let the great old ones come back into the world. And I was like, I was I was ready for that to happen. I thought the whole world was going to end, and yeah, but it's not. That was too far-fetched, I guess. Rip. Maybe, I, I have to read more Lovecraft now, because I want to know. He's got some, I, I really do appreciate that he creates his own mythos and mythology like it's fucking weird but it's not based on like judeo christianity anything it like really just seems completely his own out of left field like i do not know where he got his ideas for these things yes uh it's his it's his own little world um and it's a very strange one and i do i do appreciate that though there is a um there's a fantastical element to it, obviously. Um, there is a certain amount of like uh, of this world aspect that that makes it creepy. Mm. Yeah, the perspective was good in terms of like also for creating horror. Tom, you mentioned the they're looking through um, the not the hourglass, the uh, the telescope up when they're looking at it the other guys throwing dust on the monster. I thought that actually created more tension because those people are, they have no way of affecting the situation. Like they can only watch and like that is terror inducing, or at least I think it is. Cause it's like in dreams where you can't run away from a monster or something. You kind of just have to be there and watch it. And then also earlier when the monster first appears, like nobody can see it uh, cause you're with the villagers or the townsfolk inside their homes. And then even when the second house gets destroyed and eaten, you don't get to see the whole thing because one, you're seeing the woman on the inside of the house trying to hide, but you're even further removed because you're 
listening to it on a phone call with someone that she's talking to. So it's like, again, the person can't actually affect it. And so it's just like these things are happening and it's completely out of control, which just like choosing the different perspective of which to write certain scenes added a lot to the horror of it. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, and I think one of the benefits of doing it that way, too, is it removes the need for a lot of, like, answering questions and, like, additional, like, filler. Like, if if you try to take the perspective of, like, somebody being right there and, like, witnessing it, like, firsthand, as opposed to the looking glass with, you know, the, the townsperson that, like, saw it and passed out or the woman on the phone um, when it's, like storming towards her and then the phone dies like if you try to take the first person perspective there's a lot more like explaining you need to do or like you have to keep it a mystery just because but keeping it like one two three layers away from like the person who's experiencing it makes it where it's just like oh like like i could see myself in that situation you know i can see myself in the house on the phone hearing these things and like relaying something but also not knowing what's going on like there's there's just like inherent mystery that comes with that which i think just makes it like read more naturally and feel more natural and adds more tension to it oh yeah that was that was probably my favorite part of the whole thing was uh the phone call with the uh what were their names the the family the phase sort of, i think like f no it was e f- the fries were the ones who got fries. The fries. Yeah, the fries are the first though. one. Yeah, they yeah, were the, the fry... ones that cleaned out. Yeah, the fries, the phone call from that was heard, and then the investigation for the fries the next day. That was that was the peak of the story, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And again, I thought the build up to that was really good. I thought the way it was written was really good. Um, the situations that you're put in as a reader, like really added to the story and. The whole time I was like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's just my my only two detractions were really the way he decided to end it. Um, And not even like the choice, but just like the way it was described and then the dialogue. And part of that is the dialogue is I I did not like the two, you know, um, monologues of Armitage just being like, hey, this is exactly what we're going to do. Watch us do it. And then like, hey, this is exactly what happened. By the way, it was his twin brother. Have a nice day, and then the story ends. You know what I mean? <laughs> I will That's say my only thing. Yeah, I don't know if I'm being combative, but the uh, the other thing that now that like the other thing that bothered me was that uh, the use of the word goat. So I mean, I get that this is a goatish. This is a goat like. This is a a goat being that uh, um, our our uh, friend here is who's bringing this this demon into being but i feel like i i just i just like what bothered me about it was that like goats have a lot of very interesting qualities that you could pick out that would you know re-emphasize the goat nature of this thing um without having to just say the word goat every time because it doesn't actually help me like get what this thing is you know what I mean? Every time you say goat, I just picture a goat. Like I'm not picturing right, like, exactly. the horns or like the little like bushy tail on the end or like I don't know, whatever. It's just like you say goat and goat like and I'm like goat. Like goat. That's where my brain goes. <laughs> right. Just like, you know, the whale like thing. Like every time you say whale, I'm not picturing things about a whale, I'm picturing a whale. So it's <laughs> right. not helping me. It see did that. Make- 
it did make me, it kind of threw me off because I was thinking that it was going to be satanic something or other because of the symbology of Baphomet and then the devil as a goat. Um, but nope, apparently he's just an ugly guy. Or half, ugly. half human, half monster. Yeah, and all he just had to do was just like, you know, talk about like some horns popping out or, or you know, I don't know. There's ways to go about this. Goats are not, they're very distinguishable animals. Well, and especially the way that he writes with as much description, he uses like five or six more words than the average person while writing. And they're good. And it still reads mm-hmm. well. I'm not knocking the writing. But, you know, there's some sentences that like he's describing one thing. But there's like three commas in the description just to give you an idea of like how long the description is. And with the way he writes, just like explain and like why does every once in a while, which I didn't even really pick up on it that much until you said it. But now I'm like scrolling through and looking at it like why every once in a while you like goat like and looks like a goat. It's like you're describing everything so well. He uses the word goatish eight times, (laughs) nine times. I might control F here. And yeah, it's just like, and the thing is, is I like that. I like that as a motif, right? Like reintroducing that, that's like a very powerful way of building up this character. But it's not powerful if you use the fucking word goatish. Right. Then it's just me imagining a goat nine times in this story. <laughs> no, I think like if you really want to use that, like go ahead, say goatish like twice, you know, mm. when you're really like getting going. And then like I'm getting goating, yeah. Like, you're getting goating. <laughs> And then I'm going to have in my head, like, okay, this thing is goatish. And then when you start (laughs) describing goat-like qualities, I'm going to be like, oh, so it's that kind of goat. As if I know different types of goats. (laughs) But just give me something. (laughs) You know, it could be the greatest of all time, Tom. That's really what he could be talking about. He's the greatest warlock of all time. This is the Tom Brady of demons. Yep, that incantation. Yeah, they threw dust and then... And then banish Tom Brady from from the plane. It was just too powerful. <laughs> it was just too strong. But no, overall, I give the story, I don't know, I'd say like a 7 out of 10. I think it had like all the potential. And there was a lot of it that was well written and I was engaged in it. And like I was saying before, I really wanted to see how it finished. But it was just, you know, there, there was some stuff that was lacking. 7 I mean, out I'm, of 10. I'm glad that I read it. Um, like, just because I've never read any lovecraft before um but yeah it was it was an okay story i thought it was good didn't think it was great um i know some people he's like almost uh has a cult following where it's just like some shit doesn't matter what people do they'll just love them um which i don't think that that really deserves that but it's good like i understand why people are drawn to him but i've also found horror short stories to be like okay or so so overall they're just i don't know they're not as powerful as other short stories in my opinion Mm. i would say the mask of the red death was definitely something i would put in the excellent category oh yeah um, mask of red death as a short story Uh, mostly because it has an analogy to um to disease which is uh a real world fear as opposed to our goatish friend and his brother um yeah, I mean, I think that there's good ways to do horror short stories. Um, I'm interested to read more Lovecraft. I mean, I definitely would give this somewhere between like, you know, a seven to an eight out of ten. Um, and I imagine like this seems to be 
one of his more accessible works because it was kind of what was recommended as a thing to get started with on Lovecraft. Um, but I'd be interested to see, like, given more pages, given more uh, real estate as far as writing is concerned, I'm interested to see what he can do. Yeah, I know there's like anthologies of his works and it's short stories and novellas, but I don't know if he actually, actually, hold on, I have the internet at my fingertips. Let's see if he wrote any novels. Oh, he's from Rhode Island. That's interesting. Oh, what a bitch. From Providence, Rhode Island. Mm. He wrote so many short stories. No, yeah, I don't he think wrote he... novels though. Oh no, yeah, he does have novels. I guess the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Hmm. He collaborated with quite a few people as well. That's interesting. interesting. Or a lot of these, like at least a third of these books have a co-author. What the fuck? One of them is Harry Houdini. Yeah, he was really close with Harry Houdini. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, But the Mountain of Madness. Oh, he wrote a brief pseudo history of the Necronomicon. That's got to be worth reading. I feel like that's that's something he would shine at. Yeah, that's his that's his big contribution. Why well, he invented Cthulhu, but um, the Nep- Necronomicon, the like horror witchcraft book, that's like such a theme in horror now, and that's all thanks to him. That and anti-Semitism. Bang. Oh, really? He was an anti-Semite too. Oh no, I know his I cat. Mean... Wait, hold on. <laughs> Let me look this up. Oh no, his cat had a name. What is it? What is it, Troy? What's this? What's the cat's name? I'm just making sure, because I thought I was having this conversation with somebody else oh. the other day, and they said I was wrong. I mean, Wikipedia <laughs> never lies, right? Nope. Yep. Oh, yep. you it, know what it is. It's definitely the I'm N-word. not going to say it's, it. It's definitely the N-word. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, just wanted to double check, but yep, definitely the N-word. <laughs> and I assume by the name it's a male cat, so put those two together. H.P. <sighs> Lovecraft, what a man. My man. That was a fun little short story, though. Yeah. Yeah, I, I dug it. I dug it. Next time I read it, I'm just going to stop at chapter nine and then just leave it there. I feel like that would be totally fine. You got to stop before the dust gets thrown on the thing. I don't know. Or eight. Yeah. At the end of chapter Well, No, eight. I mean like nine's fine, but it's like midway of nine. It just took like a steep downhill. But it definitely makes me interested in reading other things that he wrote um, because I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just like not my taste of an ending. But maybe I was just like the whole time I was like, I can't wait for some like death and destruction. And then when it didn't happen, I was like, oh, I'm disappointed. So maybe I just got to read something else. But I liked I liked his writing. I mean, I would definitely it makes me more interested. This is the first thing I've ever read by him. So it makes me more interested in checking it out. That's for sure. Fuck yeah, dude. All right. Well, I think we pretty much covered all the major points here. We got ourselves a good 50 minutes worth of content. So um, next week. We are, what are we doing? We're reading the first half of Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing and, um, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail of 72. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good night. Good night. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. I ain't afraid of no ghosts.